Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to have Dr. Catherine Miller with us to tell us about her book published by Oxford University Press in 2022 titled Support the Troops, Military Obligation, Gender and the Making of Political Community, which is I found a really interesting book. We hear this thing, support the troops, support the troops, especially in the United States and the UK, um, particularly if we think about the early 2000s, but it's still very much something that happens um, even now. And this phrase kind of doesn't necessarily get interrogated, but it really deserves to be. So Kate, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to tell us about your book. Oh, thanks so much, Miranda. I'm really pleased to be here. We're pleased to have you. Um, and in fact, we'd love to start off with a bit of an introduction of you and then how you came to write this book. Yeah, for sure. Um, so as mentioned, I'm Kate Miller. I'm currently an associate professor in the Department of International Relations at the London School of Economics and Political Science. My work within the department looks, and we'll see in sort of the argument of the book, in very broad terms, at the relationship between gender and violence in how we think about international relations and how we think about things like political community, citizenship, and often ideas of of sort of normativity and ethics. Um, In terms of why I decided to write the book, uh, great question. The book is an iteration of my doctoral research. So I have been working on this project for time now. Um, but the, the reason I think I decided to write the book or wanted to write the book actually goes back a fair ways longer um, than my doctoral education to my experience of being a teenager, a reasonably young teenager, um, during the early years of the so-called global war on terror, right? So the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq post-September 11th, uh, 2001. uh, At that time, I was a teenager in rural Canada. um, And I I sort of lived and went to, to a secondary school in a small town that has a fairly robust uh, sort of tradition of military service in that in my hometown, you know, a lot of the older men in the coffee shops at that time would have served um, in the Second World War, a very few in the Korean War. My high school was sort of, and my high school was a place of sort of fairly reliable recruitment for the Canadian Armed Forces, not in huge numbers. The school I went to was incredibly small, but every year or every other year, um, a young man, man, always men in my memory, would join the Canadian military to the extent that, you know, the high school had a military army cadet corps, a sort of a club (laughs) that one could join, or the principal ran it. If you were sort of heading for trouble, you could be encouraged to join. 
we also had, you know, large um, symbolism and commitment to Remembrance Day commemorations and ceremonies. The Canadian Armed Forces sort of military recruitment band also visited the school really frequently. Um, and I set all of that up to note that it was not uncommon in my hometown for people to know well or less well people who were currently serving in the Canadian Armed Forces. And until September 11th, that meant something pretty specific, right? Which was that until uh, Canada's participation in the invasion of Afghanistan post 9-11, Canada hadn't fought what's sometimes referred to as a hot conflict since Korea, which meant that most of the people that I knew or knew of who served in the Canadian Armed Forces had not been deployed as combatants per se, though they were certainly deployed to conflict zones, right? Often at that time as part of Canadian foreign policy, as part of peacekeeping forces. And so at that time, it was like up until 9-11, it was reasonably plausible to perceive service in the Canadian military as almost belonging to sort of an international peacekeeping force as engaged in some form of humanitarianism. And of course, we know, we knew then, we know now that this is like a really unreflexive and neo-colonial way of thinking about what it means to serve in the Canadian Armed Forces and indeed to do peacekeeping. Um, but certainly that was sort of how people understood it at the time. After 9-11 and with the subsequent invasion of Afghanistan, what it meant to serve in the Canadian Armed Forces changed pretty drastically. I promise I'm getting to how this relates to the book. <laughs> but and so suddenly, you know, something that was sort of plausibly safe and sort of humanitarian now looks very risky because it is indeed engaged in something that what's more approximately uh, uh, approximates conflict um, in sort of our in the, our conventional sense of understanding it. And as a result, a lot of the young men who were members of the Canadian Armed Forces at that time suddenly had a really different job description. And it also really changed the way their families and their families in our, our small community related to the armed forces and and to the idea of war and what we saw what i sort of know i remember seeing then in particular was that suddenly there was this sort of proliferation of pro-military symbolism right so lots of canadian flags lots of sort of pro-military slogans and also quite a lot of the yellow ribbon imagery that in the us as well as canada australia and other places has become really highly associated with showing support for the troops. And I remember specifically that my parents were given a yellow ribbon magnet to put on their car. And I remember them talking about, like kind of in a casual way, what to do about that in that they um, sort of cared for the people in question, they cared for their families who were now worried about their sons who were suddenly de deployed to a war zone. Um, but they weren't so sure of whether or not they agreed with the invasion of Afghanistan. They weren't particularly convinced by the idea, it's common to the discourse, that you could support the troops but not the war. And so they were a little bit conflicted about the idea that they were going to put this yellow ribbon on their car. But at the same time, right, there was also this idea that but we do care about the young people who are deployed. We do care about their families. We do live in this community. And so maybe this is something we should do, even if we feel really complexly about what this yellow rib ribbon signifies in a broader sense. And 
you know, <laughs> several, you know, that was when I was a young teenager and like many things have happened in my life and in geopolitics since then. But in that sort of push pull between what does it mean to support the troops? Do we have to support the troops? How, what do you do when you support the troops in relation to like a war you either don't agree with or maybe are unsure about? Those sort of like tense questions of negotiating forms of like care and obligation and support really stuck with me um, and came to sort of animate what later became the much more formally articulated and systematically researched social scientific problematique that underscores the book. That is a fabulous backstory to understand because it does raise so many questions that the book then goes into. Um, with that list of questions right at the end there, kind of the many concerns and wait, what do we do about this? Obviously, as you said, you then did articulate it in a sort of official academic way. So to clarify that, what is the key puzzle that the book investigates? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Good point. So there are two I would say, and they're kind of nestled. The first most straightforward social scientific puzzly sounding question is a version of the problem I just described my parents as encountering, right? Which is that a whole bunch of surveys in the US and UK, because though I was just talking about Canada, the book in fact interrogates the United States and United Kingdom, a variety of surveys in the US and UK taken contemporaneously to the early years of the global war on terror, so 2001-2010, and, and shortly thereafter, uh, show, to, show that uh, the wars in Afghanistan, and particularly Iraq, were really quite highly contested from the start, and uh, particularly Iraq became unpopular reasonably quickly in terms of the temporal uh, pursuit of the war. At the same time, surveys also demonstrate in the US and UK that then and now people uh, indicate extremely consistently consistent and high levels of support for the troops, of support for serving military personnel, to the extent that it is really empirically clear that a reasonably large portion of people in the US and the UK report thanking the troops for serving in a war, the person doing the thanking opposed. And that is sort of the first level puzzle that the book investigates. Why are people thinking, why do people support the troops for fighting a war the person doing the thinking opposes, right? From a sort of conventional social science perspective, that is to some degree puzzling, it seems, though yeah, this is maybe not weird. the language we'd use. Yeah, it's weird. It seems a little irrational, yeah, it seems right? seems a little kind of weird, yeah. In almost any other context, we would find it profoundly strange for people to thank someone for doing something they disagreed with, right? Almost any other social setting, we would think that's strange. Now, the story I just told about my parents, though, I think sheds some light on how that happens, right? Which is that people, there's like a version of an answer to that question, which is that like basically people support the troops serving in a war they oppose because they think they should. And this was when I first started this project, like I think 
more than 10 years ago (laughs) at this point, good grief. This was actually a pretty common reaction I got from policymakers and also from some academics working on international security or civil military relations, which was basically sort of a a polite version of the so everyone's favorite so what question, right? They're like, yeah, people like the war in Iraq specifically is deeply unpopular. And so the support the troops discourses, movements and so forth are basically an epiphenomenon of that unpopularity right? It is totally normal and in no way surprising and therefore not social scientifically interesting that people would support the troops serving in a war they opposed with either an explicit or implicit statement of what else do you expect? What else are these people supposed to do? Which I think is in fact a really good question. (laughs) Now, at the time, I encountered this with some degree of frustration because I was sort of (laughs) deeply committed to the belief that supporting the troops was not a meaningless offshoot of an unpopular war, but that it actually told us something really deeply important and significant about the relationship between citizenship, political community, war making, and to some degree, liberalism. And so that that sort of led me to what I think one could think of as a secondary question that animates the book that I think is more important than the first and in some ways even more interesting, which is rather than why do people support the troops serving in a war they oppose, how did it become normal? How did it become natural to support the troops serving in a war you oppose? And then secondarily, what happens when we do that? What happens to war? What happens to politics? When it seems to be normal, natural, moral to support the troops serving in a war you oppose. Hmm. And so that is sort of the deeper, sort of more constitutive puzzle that the book is interested in interrogating. Thank you for taking us through that. Um, They're very good questions. Um, So I'm glad that, I mean, that's why I'm glad we can talk to you about them. Um, So we've got this idea of what interested you to think about this, what the kind of key questions are. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about kind of how this fits into a bit of theory, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. No, Um, love it. The key (laughs) terms here. Uh, So you relate this discussion, this investigation to these puzzles in the book, you relate it to liberalism um, and martiality. So can we talk through how you see martiality as antithetical and essential, again, nice little puzzle there, to liberalism more broadly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I should probably start by stating, as you sort of implied, how I understand liberalism within the book. And I kind of take the, I don't know how we might call it, sort of the eclectic and broad church (laughs) approach to understanding liberalism in that I take seriously um, sort of the tenets of classic liberal political theory in terms of defining sort of some of the key commitments, assumptions, and sort of conceptual framework of liberalism. But I also engage with how we tend to think about, talk about, and sort of practice liberalism as a form of political culture, as sort of a form of, we could talk about it as sort of a shared ideology, but also I sort of think about it more as sort of this general discursive soup in which a lot of the world and particularly the US and UK sort of situates itself and is made meaningful. And and so in thinking about liberalism then, I'm thinking about both 
its sort of practical and practical uh, iteration and the way it comes up in forms of classical political theory. Because, of course, we would note that there is no sort of perfectly liberal state or perfectly democratic state as envisioned in political theory in operation. And yet those terms have an important life that, that matters analytically and politically to how we understand the world. Um, and so in terms of liberalism, I'm thinking about sort of the classic commitments of uh, investments in individual liberty, um, ideas of autonomy, a very strong investment of the in, in the individual as rational and rational in a particular way. Um, and also, therefore, of liberalism as, through these things, universally applicable and potentially invested in progressive understandings of, of history, or at least sort of aspirations towards progressive, rational, ideally nonviolent understandings of history, of politics, of universal political community, right? Which then get entangled with more specific ideas relating to things like uh, democracy, certain visions of equality, market capitalism, and so on and so forth. So that's sort of how I understand liberalism, very broad sense. For the argument I make in the book, one of the things that I see is really important to liberalism that we very rarely reflect on because it's so deeply naturalized. And my political theorist friends will both be sort of nodding along and thinking, this is a simplification, which is certainly true within a very broad tradition. But that a lot of liberal political theory relies pretty heavily on a strong distinction between violence and politics, right? And basically there is the idea that a, that a sort of functional liberal political community uh, defines politics in such a way that is basically sort of reasoned contest and working out of mutual interests of rational individuals in a public sphere. And that while this may be to some degree competitive, it may not be violent, right? Violence is rendered as being distinct from outs and outside of politics and frequently posited as irrational, right? And therefore to be excluded, to be managed and so forth. And violence in this way is certainly not political. And a great deal of the way liberalism thinks about politics, the way it thinks about uh, agency, the way it thinks about the prospect for change, the way it thinks about history, the way it thinks about normative social organization is really strongly premised on this distinction between violence and politics. A distinction, of course, that is blurred basically consistently all the time in practice, but normatively and conceptually liberalism relies on this quite heavily. Now, there's a whole bunch of steps in terms of how that relates to <laughs> martiality or militarism or the military. Um, and I think two, two here are kind of salient. One is that um, liberalism actually doesn't deal, liberal political theory, not exclusively, of course, but in a very broad sense, does not deal with a great deal of interest uh, with the military or with military service. And if, if you like, we can sort of discuss why, why I think that is and how it might relate to the, to the book. And the other is that partly is a function of this, because violence, usually within liberalism, is seen as sort of a deviant and pathological problem to be managed rather than a part of normal politics. Um, this maps really neatly onto the way we tend to think about the role of the military institution within liberal political communities. And in some forms of political theory, and certainly in sort of contemporary ways of thinking about democracy and policy, we usually refer to this idea 
as the civil military divide. Okay. I.e., there is uh, aspirationally and should be institutionally, uh, empirically, and so forth, a really strong distinction between uh, the civilian sphere of social and political life and the military sphere, ideally just the military institution of social and political life. And I think, and that commitment uh, is really important to many concepts we all know about, including, among other things, a commitment to the democratic control of the armed forces, right? It's an iteration of this idea that violence is not political and indeed the small, ostensibly, institutions and instruments of legitimate violence in a liberal society absolutely must be subject to civilian political control, right? So there's a quite deep fear of violence sort of getting out of control and, and getting into politics and, you know, you could think about as subsuming or ruining or taking over the liberal polity, right? And as a result, we get quite a strong investment mapping on top of this violence politics distinction to a distinction between the civil and military spheres. This, I also want to point out, is, is not in any way my sole idea. <laughs> there is a really uh, burgeoning tradition of critical military studies that is really interested in interrogating this uh, this relationship between the civil and military spheres within liberalism. And it sort of posits this idea and points out the normative functions of this idea, as I just did. And then it also works to point out that, again, in practice, this is really consistently violated. It's consistently blurred. This doesn't really hold. And yet the sort of idea of distinct distinction has quite a lot of social, political, analytical and ethical sway. The next concept, that, so th there's that part, if, you're, if we're all hopefully with me so far. Yep. The, the where sort of martiality starts to come into this is that the thing that I imagine some of the audience <laughs> might be waiting for me to say, and that I have not said thus far, is the term militarism. And so there are lots of ways of defining militarism. I will not <laughs> run us through them all now. Um, but most of them rely on some form of basically critique of something being off in this civil military divide, right? So if we, there are sort of institutional ways of thinking about militarism that suggest that the institutional military has too much sway over the civilian uh, political decision makers, right? And so we're risking, there's something off in the political and institutional power balance between the military and civilian authorities. That's one way of thinking about it. A more common way of thinking about militarism, and this is the way of thinking about it by lots of critical military and militarism scholars, lots of feminist security scholars, for instance, though certainly those are not the only scholars that, that would posit this, is that they think about the civil and the military spheres not only in an institutional sense, but sort of in this more metaphorical social space sense, um, where they see the civil as pertaining not just to the civilian government, but to sort of all of civilian broader social life. And then the military or the marshal as being, yes, an institution, but also sort of a, a set of values, symbols, principles, worldviews, ideologies, and so forth, right? And so one way of, that militarism is often narrated is that these value symbols, practices, and so forth associated with the military 
sort of leak into this civilian sphere. And, and this, again, upsets this distinction between the civil and the military, and again, between violence and politics. And this is seen by virtually all militarism scholars um, to be in many ways risky or dangerous or pathological um, in the sense that, again, it is a bringing of violence into the, into the social and potentially into politics, um, of bringing values of aggression and hierarchy and all kinds of things we can think about as associated with military service um, as into a civil sphere that is meant to be distinct and in some ways again within liberalism often meant to be to some degree like ethically or normatively superior to the military sphere in a way that that um, is sometimes discussed in language that suggests it is basically contaminating the civilian sphere which is a problem for a whole host of reasons but one of which is basically that it suggests that like basically this is a threat to liberal democracy uh, uh, value held in and of itself and it is also usually seen as a major risk factor for basically uh, really aggressive foreign policy and war making. And if we think about the way that the role of popular militarism or civic militarism is sometimes narrated within Europe in terms of its implication in the outbreak and, and um, prolongation of the First World War, we might think about how that is typically seen to happen. That is a big lead up to why I talk about martiality. I know there's so many steps in there because basically I'm telling you that I'm trying to give you a very potted <laughs> heuristic sort of mm -hmm. history of the concepts of militarism, which I've missed out so many important iterations. And, and I should note that many scholars in critical military studies sort of articulate an understanding of a specifically liberal vision of militarism that is sort of assimilated to some of those ideological, cultural, organizational characteristics of liberalism I articulated mm. earlier. Yeah, I mean, this is, of course, uh, in a lot of ways, a highlights tour of the book. Um, so anyone really wanting to get into the details of this, please go read the book, right? Um, so if we can kind of build on then to talk about discursive martiality. Yes, absolutely. So the it, there's sort of one last twist, I think, in terms of my little story about militarism <laughs> that helps get into the idea of discursive martiality. And it's that... Uh, Colleagues listening in the audience and peers listening in the audience might say something along the lines of, Kate, supporting the troops is just militarism, right? The glorification of the military, it's leaking into the civilian sphere, it's messing with politics, it's promotion of war, isn't supporting the troops, bigger quotes, just militarism. And to which I would say, and do say in the book, yes and no, what a satisfying answer. But <laughs> I, I point out that the way that I just narrated militarism and the understanding of militarism that that question hinges on places it in a particular relationship to the way we understand politics as normally and normatively working within liberalism, which is that if we see militarism as a deviant sort of leaking of violence and military associated values and symbols and so forth into the civilian sphere, this is really premised on an understanding and naturalization of that distinction between violence and politics within liberalism, right? And it, which in turn normalizes and naturalizes 
a specific understanding of liberalism, right? Again, as specific, as rational, as reasoned, and so forth, right? In the book, I call that the good story of liberalism. And so I, along with other colleagues, really importantly, the work of Alison Howell, basically point out, it's a bit of a sophisticated conceptual argument, that the, our reference to, right, conceptually and empirically, the existence of a thing called militarism serves to uphold this specific version of understanding the role of violence within liberalism as exceptional, as pathological, as deviant, and so forth. And what this has the political effect of doing is therefore defining away the violences of liberal states and liberal polities as either exceptional, right? This is not how liberalism normally works. It's an accident. Or actually by negative definition, as in fact, not no longer liberalism at all. And that's why the idea of militarism, I think, is actually really important to the operation ideologically of liberalism, even as it's antithetical to the principles and values commitments we usually see as embedded within liberalism. And the reason that's important, as Howell and others and I try to point out, is that we know (laughs) that liberal states are in fact often quite violent, right? Liberalism involves a host of forms of violence, right? You often entangled with powered hierarchies of gender, sexuality, race, class, coloniality, and so forth, right? In And in practices relating to war and war making, really importantly, but also as Powell points out, policing and the way we think about and regulate disability, um, the way we think about the legacies and contemporary violences associated with colonialism and settler colonialism and so forth. And so basically, the reason that I talk about, the long way of saying, the reason I talk about martiality and discursive martiality in the book rather than militarism is because I think that though the supporting the troops sort of looks like militarism and to some degree is, continued recourse to the concept of militarism inadvertently plays into the excusing or the distancing or the alighting of these specific forms of liberal violence from being incorporated in our account of and our understanding of militarism, or pardon me, liberalism. And so I moved to thinking about martiality and specifically discursive martiality as a way of trying to analytically and critically account for that sort of loading of militarism, while noting that all of the scholarship that goes into the critique of the civil-military divide, the critique of militarism, remains really important in my work and really vital. And so to sort of specify discursive martiality, I mean it, I mean two things that are actually fortunately for us all at this point, reasonably easy for me to talk about. By discursive martiality, I mean two things. I mean, first, the formal politics of how we talk about and think about war and particularly military service in the public sphere. So by this, I mean, you know, formal political contestations, institutional discussions of civil military relations, political discussions of the legitimacy of specific wars, discussions of who uh, serves in the military, recruitment numbers, all these types of things. And second, drawing on post-structural understandings of politics and violence, I also think about discursive martiality as informing the limits or the bounds of the political. 
And by that, I mean, I'm interested in thinking about how relations of violence make up what we think of as politics, of liberalism, and as the political community at all. And so looking at discursive martiality lets me look at the reproduction of the institutional military as a sort of air quotes, real thing, as a social fact. It helps me really take seriously the construction of this violence politics civil military binary, right? The way it's challenged and the way it's reinforced as and reified as a form of social fact. And also, though we haven't talked about it yet, <laughs> the way that this is also uh, made possible by and entangled with an underlying sex gender binary that is that is also sort of in the mix here in terms of making up uh, relations of violence and solidarity in the making of contemporary citizenship. Hmm. So that I think does a great job of giving us kind of the wh- where we're talking about, right? What what are the conversations that this book is part of, and also to some extent, kind of implicitly a wider view of why this initial puzzle is important. It's not just do you put a sticker on your car, right? It speaks to all these much broader themes. Um, So I'm wondering if we can kind of make that a bit more explicit now that we have um, this theoretical background. What are the political stakes of support the troops? Oh, what a good question. Okay. I think the political, it's funny, I often have trouble discussing the political stakes of supporting the troops, in part because when you work on a project for a while, they seem very obvious. But the political stakes are this naturalization of supporting the troops makes liberal wars easier. That's kind of it. Actually, that's not it. But that's probably the headline. The naturalization of supporting the troops, and we can talk about why later, it makes the war making activities of liberal states easier, in part, I argue in the book, because it it shifts our consideration of of the in, when we think about sort of the ethics of war, politics of war, it sort of shifts our our collective glance, our collective investment away from what we might think of as sort of conventional questions about war, like is this war legitimate? Do its uh, <laughs> do the ends align with the means? Do we think it's a good idea? Is it worth it? Who's fighting the war? Are we okay with that? And really importantly to me, centering questions of harms, right? Mass death, mass suffering, mass displacement of the civilians in the theater of war, right? So, and instead, supporting the troops distracts us. This is putting it extremely bluntly, but it distracts us right, and displaces these questions from the legitimacy and ethics of war away from harms to distant civilians abroad, and instead redirects our attention to the troops at home. Are they being supported well? Are they being appropriately supported? Are we being good people in terms of our support for the troops? Are my neighbors being good people in terms of their support for the troops? And that 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 shift from thinking seriously about the politics and ethics of violence to instead thinking about the maintenance of an appropriate supportive relationship, right, that is often seen as affective, right, and Mm -hmm. apolitical with the troops, that's really serious. And Mm -hmm. that, I argue, majorly facilitates the perpetuation of liberal war. And in doing so, the sort of the secondary, secondary effect is that in the book I talk a lot about, and I kind of alluded to it just now, the ways in which citizenship 
particular norms of heterosexual masculinity and military service all sort of come together in a nexus of what we might think about as sort of what it means to be a good contemporary citizen, what it means to be a good contemporary person. And so in addition to making liberal wars easier, which is certainly the thing we should care about first and foremost, these discourses also really naturalize and reify what it means to be a good person and what it means to be a good citizen, the contemporary liberal democracy, that even though we very rarely think about it, not that many people serve in the military anymore, really continues to rely on at least on either a potential masculinized obligation to commit violence for the group in the form of military service or an obligation to support the commission of collective violence on behalf of the group. And those two things, I think, are the major political stakes Mm. of supporting the troops as a phenomenon. No, absolutely. And do have kind of, that's obviously not a new thing necessarily with the recent wars, but also is to some extent new because we there's so few people who now serve in it. So the kind of direct link between any individual who might say I support the troops and knowing someone who's actually serving is so much um, looser, I suppose, than it used to be. So I wonder if we can maybe turn to a different section of the book um, and a question that you hinted at earlier with the kind of mass surveys that I find absolutely fascinating. Um, because of course, this idea of like, saying support the troop having the sticker having the magnet the ribbon whatever um that looks very pervasive in a lot of senses but like we actually have data on it we actually have real information (laughs) so can you walk us through who actually supports the troops and if we are thinking now of this context where the liberal norms um the martiality all of these things really have this quite strong pressure that kind of everyone is meant to support the troops. What do we know about who actually does? And how well does this map on to these normative pressures? Oh, that's such a good question. It is oddly one that the book can only half answer, I have to say. Because the book, as perhaps implied by the fact that I was just talking about something called discursive martiality, the method the book takes is a discourse analysis. And it's a discourse analysis of the use of support the troops discourse in the US and UK from 2001 to 2010. And I look at uses of support the troops or analogous phrases um, in the mainstream print media across the political spectrum in both states. I look at its use uh, in the legislature and by uh, the executive branches of government, as well as by the departments and the department and ministry of defense. And I also look at the way support the troops and similar phrases and discourses are used by um, pro-military charities or military support charities, we might say, as well as anti-war groups in the US and the UK. And I I mentioned that um, in part, honestly, because it took literal years. (laughs) So I really want people to go and look at the discourse analysis. Um, But but also to, to flag that when I sort of talk about the results of the study or the findings in the study, I'm talking about the way supporting the troops is represented within that body, within that corpus, and within this sort of generalized discourse. Okay. And so when we talk about, in terms of this question of who supports the troops, I am able to say who the discourse says should support the troops 
much more directly than I am able to comment on whether or not these feelings of support are like genuinely held, although I think they are by many people and that's important to take seriously, right? But what sort of people's specific understandings of support or their subjective intentions in terms of support, I'm way less able to get traction on. And so the perhaps somewhat unsatisfying, but I think really politically important answer to the question of who supports these troops, according to the discourse, everyone. Really, literally, everyone is the most common explicit or implicit um, subject, entity, etc., that is represented within my corpus as supporting the troops. Everyone. And that, I think, at first glance, might seem a bit banal <laughs> in that it doesn't leave anybody out. But I actually think it's really incredibly important to how the discourse operates politically, which is, A, it is in fact very, al very aligned with liberalism, that it is a universalized form of address that applies to everyone. And also that within this, there is no group, entity, community, constituency, and so forth that is left out of this expectation and obligation to support the troops. Hmm. Right. And that's it's really politically significant. It's not, this is only an issue for one particular group or whatever. And so many things are. And it's significant, I think, that this isn't. No. And and you do see, and I do track in the discourse that it's also really common for specific groups to be specified as supporting the troops. So, uh, you know, it will, like, the government will make explicit statements in either the US or UK, but this particular administration supports the troops. Political parties will make statements. It's very important for political parties to position themselves as supporting the troops because of this naturalized obligation. They will make explicit statements that their specific political party supports the troops. Um, you will also see it occasionally, like military families will make, are often explicitly represented as supporting the troops and so on and so forth. But the main point is that there really is no constituency um, that can be meaningfully, or I guess legitimately is probably a better way to say it, legitimately excluded from the expectation to support the troops. And as a result, uh, statements of support for the troops are also usually, I think, all statements of authority, of legitimacy, of credibility, and really importantly, mm. also of political belonging and mm. membership. A good way to think about it, I think, is that lots of studies in the past, including by my friend and colleague Ron Krebs, have pointed out that in the past, and just under through the present, in democracies, military service has been a really effective, if unfortunate in its necessity, vector for previously marginalized or minoritized people to claim full rights and citizenship within the democratic polity. Because military service is very highly assimilated to normative citizenship. And I think if we think about that there is now something I think of a shift in emphasis for military service towards military support, we can see claims to support the troops as likewise claims to equality, uh, citizenship, participation, and so forth. Hmm. No, absolutely. I think there's a very direct thread to be drawn between that tradition and what we're seeing now. Um, we've been talking about the support part of support the troops, right? Who's doing the supporting? What does it mean? Why do we care? What are the stakes? 
can we switch to focusing on the the troops bit? <laughs> um, who are the troops? Oh, um, <laughs> my instinct is to answer that by saying whoever, everyone, no <laughs> one, which is not very analytically satisfying, but definitely is true. Um, mm. Okay, in the book, I, ba I basically point out that <laughs> we tend, when we think and talk about the troops, we like we know empirically what that is supposed to mean. It is supposed to mean military personnel, right? The troops usually mean military personnel. In fact, it usually means enlisted military personnel. But I make the argument in the book that if we look at how the troops work within discourse conceptually as a specific figure, they don't always refer to enlisted military personnel. And in fact, the meaning of the troops is more abstract and it's not very well specified. And I kind of make the somewhat bold claim <laughs> in the book that you actually can't meet the troops. It's impossible. You could meet some enlisted military members, but you can't meet the troops because the troops are distinct collective political figure, distinct collective political subject that sort of are defined by several things, one of which is the fact that they are a group. And I, on, on that base, I sort of describe it in this way, is that um, if we think about, by analogy, um, the working class and the way, it's, the, work, the way the working class is often narrated to sit within capitalism, the working class means something uh, different than the contemporary mode of production or indeed means of production. It also means something different than a whole bunch of workers or a whole bunch of employees, right? The meaning political and, uh, and political and social and significance of the working class means something distinct, right? It, it's not either reducible from or derivable from either capitalism or the idea of a bunch of workers. And I basically suggest that as a group and as a distinct collective figure, the troops work similarly when we think about relations of the, the military, collective violence, and martiality. And basically, I suggest that the troops are not the same and cannot be, cannot be they're not uh, derivable from the idea of the institutional military per se, nor, importantly, does it make sense politically or conceptually to read them simply as an aggregation of soldiers, right? They may be, in context, basically referring to or used to mean a group of soldiers or the institutional military. But as an idea, as an object to refer to, I think actually it is reasonably intuitive that the troops mean something more and different to either of those two things. Oh. And that, that, and in fact, they, that in doing so, they're actually less characterized by like, who are they specifically? Or like, can I meet them? Where do I find them? Et cetera, et cetera. Then the way they tend to be characterized and somewhat counterintuitively, the troops are usually characterized in a couple of ways. One is a, as I just mentioned, they're a group. They're always a group. That's really important. They also usually are uh, posited as somewhat passive because they're, they basically sort of exist to receive support. They're often posited as reasonably passive when they are discussed. In fact, they are rarely positioned as fighting wars, somewhat oddly. They're also, as a result, sometimes actually quite counterintuitively when we think about soldiering myths, 
they're often constructed as quite dependent, right? They're actually dependent on civil society for support uh, in a way that, that actually gives them this really interesting inflection of like vulnerability to potential harm that we certainly wouldn't associate with sort of an ideal, typical heroic soldier or with the institutional military. And they're also, as a function, I think, of this idea of being being a group, they they actually can incorporate, pretty, like, like support, they actually can incorporate pretty much any group, position, embodied identity, community, and so forth within the society. So like really, anyone, everyone, no one can be the troops. And that's <laughs> partly why it's so effective politically. Mm, no, absolutely. Um, if we then kind of combine some of these pieces to, I'm, address something I'm, I'm glad you talked about in the book, because I think it's very true practically, but isn't, again, something we always think about. So we've got this idea that everyone, without exception, is meant to support the troops, that the troops can encompass essentially anyone or everyone, um, and that both of these things make supporting the troops something so normalized that no one really questions it, and there's not just political stakes and pressure, but very much going back to the example of your parents, social pressure. Um, all of these things together kind of lead to something that I think is relatively obvious but worthy of discussion, that this discourse makes opposition or dissent to war way more complicated. Um, and goes back to that thing you said at the beginning of like, can we support the troops but not the war? Is that a viable position? Can you maybe kind of talk us through this part of it and what impact it has on opposition and dissent? Oh, yeah. Great point. So, well, I think when I look at like my my sort of <laughs> broader notes on this for whenever I talk about this topic, the first thing that this says is it's a trap. <laughs> um it's true. Supporting the troops, not the war, as I sort of started our, our conversation with, was a really common phrase in the, U in the UK and US during the so-called global war on terror. And it was an attempt to try and sort of square this circle of, I want to be a good citizen, I want to be a good gendered subject, but I'm not that into the war. Let's, let's support the troops as sort of an attempt to, to get out of this problem. Um, in the book, basically, I argue that this doesn't work for a variety of reasons. One is that we see during the global war on terror and like through the present, as, as I hopefully I've sort of reinforced, supporting the troops as a statement, as a position and so forth, is really consistently framed as being totally apolitical, right? Entirely natural, a moral obligation, like a mark of being a good person, rather than being a political intervention. At that time, though, discussing the war, right, not even necessarily like criticizing the war, but even discussing the war was really often framed as political. And of course, therefore, as inappropriately political. And actually, as a side note, one of the things I, one of the things I think is really interesting is about support the troops discourses is that it has this... Um, implicit denigration of politics or engaging in politics that I think has really, we've really come to see more to the fore in US and UK politics and sort of the turn towards populism that they've undertaken in the period since uh, 2001, where like just engaging in politics at all seems to be bad or at least questionable. 
and really explicitly, especially when the troops are deployed, right? It's inappropriate. How anti-war groups at the time tried to get around that was, was this idea of support the troops, but not the war. Or a phrase that I imagine people will be familiar with, which is the idea of support the troops, bring them home, right? This really common phrase of anti-war groups and peace organizations in, in the early 2000s. And the aim of that, of course, was again, like really genuine and strategically wise. And what it was hoping to do was two things. One, it was hoping to leverage public investment in and genuine care for something called the troops to bolster an anti-war position. So they framed ending the war as a means of protecting the troops, right? Strategically, very smart, very sound. It also was a move, we haven't talked about the history of this much, but it was an attempt to sort of refute and forestall a common portrayal of uh, anti-war protesters and anti-war dissent as anti-troop or somehow betraying the troops. Right. And in the American context, this is a legacy of, of um, protest around the Vietnam War. In the UK context, this is a thread that's slightly more recent, but it's a similar anxiety about protesters as potentially betraying, undermining and so forth the troops. Because ultimately what support for the troops is, is an expression of collective solidarity around violence. And so anti-war opposition was was really working towards this idea of support the troops by bringing them home, would leverage the discourse and get get away from a common denigration of anti-war dissent. Hmm. What it does, though, and I think probably listeners have, have arrived at this point already, is that what it does is it sets up this kind of odd tautology where we can support the war because we support the troops, or we can end the war because we support the troops, but suddenly the troops have become the explicit or implicit arbiter of the morality, right, and legitimacy of a particular conflict. And again, thinking back to those political stakes we're mentioning earlier, I think that's a problem for two reasons. One is it it makes the, again, it, it centers the troops in our ethical considerations of war rather than the harms that are being visited on civilians. Um. And secondarily, it also really reinforces this idea that the troops absolutely must be supported. They, it, the troops must be supported as a contemporary marker of being a good citizen, of being a good person. And though we've chatted about it a little bit less, in the book I talk about how it's also important to being a good gendered subject, right? Usually a good masculinized public subject. And, and if we think that supporting the troops as a discourse facilitates liberal war, then an anti-war discourse that is premised on on reinforcing that underlying association, there's some chance of short-term gains. And if so, that's great. The whole point is opposing violence. But long-term, it doesn't do anything to contest the way that a liberal understanding of gender, citizenship, and violence is premised upon and facilitates war-making. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. that um, and and leads me very nicely to kind of, all right, if everyone is meant to support the troops, if dissent and opposition and support the troops but not the war doesn't make any sense, um, is there anything that can be done about this? Right. Um, yes. 
unsurprisingly, I, you know, I don't have an sh- easy answer. And I think it's really hard. It, in part because, as I sort of implied in my discussion of, of uh, anti-war dissent, if, if you contest the idea that one should support the troops or you suggest that you don't support the troops, you're at really serious risk of basically not being seen as like a political actor, but as basically just being a bad person, right? Like it's offensive not to support the troops during a war for all of the reasons we just discussed, which kind of, I think, raises the, it raises the stakes (laughs) on attempting to figure out what we should do. In the book, though, I kind of run through, I run through several options, like how might we think about addressing this problem? And I, in a kind of schematic way, I'm like, should we do more liberalism to, to address this problem? Should we do like better liberalism to address this problem? I say no. Um, <laughs> I briefly say, would fascism <laughs> address the problem of supporting the troops? Like it does, but obviously not in a politically and ethically laudable way. So next, I engage also a little bit with whether a, 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 a really deep commitment to a pacifist politics that again really centers the harms and suffering associated with violence. Would that uh, would that give us some traction? on this sort of broad problem of supporting the troops. And the answer there, I think, is sort of yes and no, in that it really sets out quite a robust political alternative, an alternative way of relating to violence. But it's also, at least in our current moment, one that is so far removed from this naturalization of gender, martiality, and citizenship, that it also risks just kind of passing people by. There's like a move, I think, before before that. And so in the book, I really cautiously, but with commitment, basically suggest that if we think that supporting the troops facilitates uh, liberal wars in ways that, that we object to, then though it is socially risky and quite fraught, then the political move is to refuse to support the troops. Not, I really want to say, in a mean way. <laughs> in a petty way, or in a way that discounts or is uninterested in or unempathetic to the services, sacrifice, and experiences of military personnel or their families, right? I'm really glad we talked about how the troops and military personnel aren't the same already, because I think it helps this particular point I'm trying to make land a bit more softly. Instead, what I think of is, is that a refusal to support the troops is not to treat Uh, serving military personnel or veterans callously, but rather to de-exceptionalize the forms of support and care that they receive. And to, instead of supporting the troops as the troops as part of an implicit or explicit war-making practice, I suggest that we actually should sort of relocate uh, serving military personnel, veterans, and indeed our resistance to this form of martial politics into a broader set of interlinked social struggles, right? To think about resisting the military, resisting war, as in sort of almost a retro way, but a way that I do not think has been exhausted, as part of a broader broader set of struggles around anti-racism, queer and trans liberation, labor movements, disability rights movements, broader commitments to feminism that help us get traction on how some forms of normative identity facilitate the perpetuation of these ideas about military service and citizenship. 
uh, into broader movements around resisting state violence more generally in terms of questions about immigration reform, border abolition, um, policing reform, police abolition, and anti-carceral politics. And so I think bigger quotes, the answer, such as it is, is to refuse to support the troops, but not in a way that is checked out, but in a way that de-exceptionalizes the role of the military ideologically, institutionally, culturally, within and across liberal societies in such a manner that we're able to relocate it within broader uh, struggles for transformative political change. Hmm. Not an easy answer, but an important one. So thank you for taking us through that. Obviously, in that last answer and right back um, earlier in the conversation when we were you were talking us through how this particular question kind of links into much wider discourses, there's obviously a lot of things that you are interested in and could be working on kind of now that this book is done. But I'm wondering if there's any projects in particular, whether even if it's not a book, even if it's not on Support the Troops, you'd like to preview? Oh, gosh. Um, yes, thank you for asking. I think coming out of the book, the thing that I'm interested in, and maybe I'm saying it out loud as a commitment to do something about it, even if it doesn't turn into a book. <laughs> um, but I but I end the book by reflecting on basically one of the ways of thinking about all the stuff I just said about de-exceptionalizing the military is that I'm increasingly interested in sort of the idea or vision or hope for something that we might call military abolition. And I don't have a specific vision for what that means or what one might do with that idea, but I do think I have a commitment to sort of thinking it through in a more serious way. And so I hope that some of my future work will will engage with thinking through that idea and, and, it, and basically even see, does it hold any promise, right? Is that the right, right avenue to, to go next? Oh. All right. Well, that um, sounds intriguing. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's one way. And then alongside that, I also have a, I also, I'm hoping to start up a broader project sort of that, that takes this interest in uh, the relationship between violence and the political and community and normative public personhood in a slightly different direction, um, where I'm hoping at least to look at various modes and ways in which death are articulated and understood and experienced politically within contemporary international order in a way that maintains my interest in militaries uh, and military violence and war, but also starts to look at how military violence and war sits within sort of a broader constellation of the way we think about and organize our thoughts about the politics of death, the politics of harm and the politics of suffering, um, yeah. somewhat informed um, by the experience of the pandemic as mm. I know has impacted many scholars in the way they think about what it is we do for a living. Mm -hmm. Well, both of those projects sound fascinating. So thank you for giving us that little sneak peek and best of luck pursuing them. Uh, while you're doing that, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Support the Troops, Military Obligation, Gender and the Making of Political Community, published by Oxford University Press. Kate, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Oh, thank you again, indeed, for the interest in the book and for having this chat with me. I've enjoyed it greatly.